good to be with you once again. Passage that Harry just read, John 4, 43 through 54, that's going to be our text for this morning. Uh, so you might want to keep your Bibles open to that. I hope you have a Bible and uh, you're ready to go on that. Last Sunday, we wrapped up the exchange and encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Um, I really enjoyed that whole section and uh, the interaction that he had with her and, and, and the outcome, which was a revival in her town, her being saved, and then many of her townspeople being saved. It was just, a, just an incredible story and, and just so helpful um, for me. And this morning, we're going to look at the next episode where Jesus uh, basically leaves Samaria and enters Galilee, and he heals a Galilean official's son. And this particular miracle constitutes the second major sign of eight, which John used to reinforce Jesus's true identity for producing belief in his readers. Because we've already learned and heard that really the primary purpose of John's gospel is evangelism. It's to prove who Jesus is and to prove our need of Jesus and to sort of command us to believe in him. And eight primary miracles that John deals with in his gospel, but that's not to say that Jesus only did eight miracles. He did a whole lot of stuff, but eight are the focus in this gospel. Some believe that this story that we're looking at is actually the same story as that of the healing of the centurion's servant in the synoptic gospels of Matthew and Luke. That's chapter 8 of Matthew and chapter 7 of Luke. So some will argue and say, hey, this is the same thing that's going on here in John's gospel, but the evidence, however, suggests otherwise. I do not believe they are the same stories. They are two different stories. Uh, in, in our story, we see a father and son, uh, but in Matthew 8 and Luke 7, we see a centurion and one of his servants. That's a pretty big difference between father and son. That's a different combination altogether. Also, uh, what we see in the synoptic Gospels is, is we see Jesus commend this, this Roman official, this centurion, for this incredible faith that he has. But in our text, Jesus chides the father for his missing faith, for his lack of faith. So I think that based on those two very, very important differences that we're not looking at, uh, the same story that's kind of regurgitated in John as it is over in the Synoptic Gospel. This is a whole different account. This is a whole different event. And uh, I've divided our passage into three parts. We're going to look at encountering unbelief in uh, 43 through 47. We're going to look at exposing unbelief in 48 and 49. And we're going to look at, I think most importantly, eliminating unbelief in verses 50 through 54. I think it's befitting that we pray once more before we actually get to work. Uh, Lord in heaven, we, we come to you and humbly acknowledge uh, your presence here, your awesome presence uh, that I sense. And it causes me to kind of want to relinquish myself and sort of bow before you and before your throne and just listen and humbly listen. And I pray that that would be the disposition and attitude of everyone in this room, that we would just kind of humble ourselves and put aside with the cares of, of the world and everything else and listen to you now. It is you 
who is planning to speak to us here today. It's not me, it's not some guy, it's not a pastor. We're talking about your word, and it's you that's going to present your word to us. So I pray that we would have open minds, hearts, and ears to the truth, that we would hear the truth and not just hear it, but that the Holy Spirit would attend it and change our lives, whether we be believers or not. Maybe there might be somebody here today that becomes a believer. How wonderful would that be, Lord? All of heaven would rejoice, it says in Scripture. And so um, we just pray for your will, not ours, and help us to focus, help us to learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's pick it up there in uh, part one, encountering unbelief. And that's 43 through 47. I'll reread. After the two days, he, that's speaking of Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And 45, it says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. It's our first section, encountering unbelief. And after Jesus preaches the gospel for two days in the town of Sychar, in the district of Samaria, and basically after igniting a full-fledged Holy Spirit revival there where people are getting saved left and right, Jesus sort of packs his bags and joins with his disciples, and he resumes his trip to Galilee. If you remember, when we got into the Samaritan woman narrative, he was passing through Samaria to get to Galilee. So he was on his way to Galilee to begin with. And now he stops off and he's done in Samaria. And now he leaves and he's resuming his trip to Galilee. When Jesus entered Galilee, the Galileans, those are the people that live in that province, uh, who had witnessed his signs and wonders during the previous Passover feast at Jerusalem, these people welcomed him. And we learned not too long ago that when Jesus was ministering in Judea during the Passover feast, there were a whole lot of people that were there witnessing what he was doing. And some of these people had come down from Galilee, and now as Jesus goes to Galilee on that trip, these people are there and they're welcoming him. Wherever he went, he kind of traveled and moved through the region and people would gather and greet him. It's kind of an exciting scene, I think. But when Jesus searched their hearts, as only God can do, he noticed that something was wrong with these folks, with these people. They were unbelievers. They weren't converted. They were, maybe we would say, superficial, like Nicodemus was at first. Remember when we talked about him? So these people were kind of gathering and welcoming him, and, and, but they weren't believers. They weren't followers. They weren't disciples. They were fans. They thought Jesus was cool. They knew that he could do things supernaturally and he had power, but they weren't really interested in who he actually is. They were interested in what he could do. And John, the author of this gospel, adds an important parenthetical statement in verse 44 that captures the spiritual climate of this moment. Jesus had just left Samaria, a non-Jewish 
pagan province where he had been received wholeheartedly without any pretension. Right? That's what we read. The Samaritans who were not Jewish were all over Jesus like a cheap suit. They, they, they thought, man, this guy is cool. He's staying with us. Look at what he's done with this, this, this woman that lives in our town. They just went after Jesus. They, they weren't reserved. They weren't hesitant. The Holy Spirit had done something really powerful there. But they, in this place, that's not technically Jesus' regular territory, they received him wholeheartedly. But when Jesus enters Galilee, a Jewish province, the, the homeland of the Jewish people, his own people, not to say that all people aren't in a sense, but these are the Jewish people. When he enters this province, he begins to interact with his own people. They're not Samaritans. These are Jews. And what does he experience? What does he encounter? Unbelief. He is not received wholeheartedly. People are welcoming him, and it looks good. They're putting on a show, but in their hearts, there's no faith. There's no belief. There's no submission. They don't think he's Lord. They don't think he's Savior. So what, a, what an interesting dynamic to go into a place where people should be absolutely clueless, clueless, clueless as to who you are and, and totally reject you and despise you because you don't have the history or the prophets or anything. And yet these people in Samaria totally embrace him. Yet his own people who have all of the blessings and graces of God are smiling and going, we're glad you're here. Not really. Can you do something for us? And this very thing happened to Jesus in his other territory where the Jews lived, Judea. Now, a similar thing occurred with the Old Testament prophets. God sent them to address God's people, but God's people, the Jews, rejected them, dishonored them, despised them. Some were even killed. God's own people killed his own, their own prophets, the people who had come to, to help them and to preach the gospel and, and to help them come back to the Lord. In fact, Isaiah was actually bound, and history says it's not the scripture, so it could be true, it might not be true, but according to history and church history, Isaiah was bound, and he was one of the great prophets. He's a major prophet. And, and he, was, he was taken by his own people, and he was, he was bound and tied up alive, and he was placed in a hollow tree and then sawn in half. That's how he was killed, because the people hated him, and they hated the message, and they hated God who had sent him and spoke through him. And At one point, Jesus says to his disciples that he too, just like the Old Testament prophets, had no honor in his homeland, that a prophet does not receive honor, is not accepted in his own hometown. Jesus is paralleling with what the Jewish people had done with the Old Testament prophets. And that is the exact dynamic that is playing out here. Although you've got all these smiling faces and all these fans lined up, there is a rejection in the heart of who Jesus is. There is a rejection of his true, full identity as Savior, as Messiah, as Lord. And that's why the parenthetical statement is there. So often we see all of these exciting things going on and people responding to the Lord and doing all this stuff, but actually in their hearts there's no real love. There's no real admiration. There's no submission to God. People just go through the motions. The parenthetical statement there applies to those scenarios where people are just faking it and Jesus as the prophet with a capital P is not really being received and honored. That's... 
John's way of capturing the spiritual climate at this moment. You got a lot of stuff going on, but it ain't real. Jesus and the disciples are real, but the fans are not. This whole spiritual sort of uh, setup here and climate, it was just characterized by superficiality and unbelief, activity, but no faith. Jesus may have been welcomed by the Galileans, but they were acting like football fans watching and waiting for a touchdown. They wanted Jesus the miracle worker, but they did not want Jesus the Savior. Jesus passed through Cana where he had performed his first miracle. Boy, you'd think that would have got some attention, and honestly it did. Everyone in town knew about it at this point, but the situation was exactly the same in Cana. People saw, heard about the miracle and all that. Some of them witnessed it. Some of them heard about it. And it created a lot of energy and excitement and all that. But it wasn't kind of a faith thing. It was just, wow, somebody did something that's just incredible. He turned water into wine. Same kind of spiritual climate there in Cana, even after Jesus does a miracle. And you must understand that the purpose of the miracles is to plant the seeds of faith. Jesus preaches the gospel. He tells people who he is. People go, I don't know about that. He performs a miracle to authenticate what he's been saying. And it should result in the seeds of faith being planted and something happening. God uses that. The Spirit works through that. But in this scenario in Cana and throughout Galilee, there was no faith. When Jesus entered Capernaum, he encountered a Galilean official. This is not the centurion, the Roman centurion. This is a Galilean official. This is a a Jewish man. And this man must have served in the royal court of King Antipas, the tetrarch of Galilee. He was a big-time official, big-time official. A little later, we see that he had servants, and that shows that he had money and prominence. And so Jesus goes into this one particular area, Capernaum, which is near the Sea of Galilee, and he, is, uh, he encounters this, this Galilean official, this Jewish man who basically works for the king of that district. And the official had a son who was sick with fever. Today you take a couple of Tylenol and your fever goes down and you kind of ride that out for a few days and you're good to go. Back in the old days, a fever could kill you quick. And have anything to take to to quell it, to subdue it. Wet cloths and things like that. But this young son here had a a fever. He was sick with a fever. And it says he was near the point of death in the text. When this official who has this dying son hears of Jesus coming from Judea into Galilee, he goes and finds Jesus. I mean... If you're a parent who has a son that's dying and all of the doctors and everyone has been trying to help and nobody can do anything for your son, you as a parent are going to do anything and everything you can to get that help for your kid. And that's exactly what this man did. He hears that Jesus is here. He knows that Jesus has supernatural power. He's heard the stories. Maybe he witnessed some of these things that Jesus did before during the Passover in in Jerusalem. I don't know the dynamic, but he knows who Jesus is in terms of supernatural power. And as a last-ditch effort, what does he do? He runs off and goes, and Jesus is in the area. I'm going to find him and see if he'll help me. And when he finds Jesus, he asks Jesus to 
come to his home and heal his son. I would do the same thing. Wouldn't you? You kidding me? I would have invented an airplane that didn't happen back then and flew to Jesus. My son would have been long dead because it probably would have taken me 50 years to design the plane. I would have done anything to help Colin Ryan or Ian. Anything. My wife. Any of you in this room. And those of you who listen to the recording who aren't here, I might do it for you, but since you're not here, I don't know. (laughs) Everything with me is contingent upon attendance. No, I'm kidding. It's not. Kind of, but not really. Wouldn't you do this for your loved one? Of course you would. Of course you would. It's interesting, the uh, phrase there, asked. Do you see that in your Bible? The man asked Jesus. And this phrase translates as begged repeatedly. So this isn't, kind sir, would you come back, graciously come back? You know, he's not asking with this sort of kind of demeanor and disposition. He is literally pleading with Jesus, please come and heal my son. He's going to die, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. He's pleading with him. He's begging him. It's not just a simple asking. It's a begging. This man was, was desperate. He was desperate. His son was in the, the final hours of his life. The thought of losing his child, which I can't imagine what that must be like. And I pray that, that I never, I pray that I am so long gone before any of my kids go. Isn't that the way it should be? doesn't always happen that way. This man was desperate. I would have been desperate. You would have been desperate. And he pleads with Jesus. But, but, this man was no different from all the others in terms of spiritual climate. No different. Some try to argue that he was a man of great and intense faith because he came to Jesus. People came to Jesus all the time who had no faith. People come to Jesus all the time today who have no faith. People ask, people today who have no faith ask Jesus for stuff all the time. It happens. This man was no different from everyone else. He was dead in his sins. He was not a believer. He did not believe in Jesus as Savior. He did not accept Jesus' message and who Jesus said he is. He was not interested in in who Jesus is as Savior, although it's interesting that he wanted him to save his son, but we're not talking spiritual stuff here. We're talking save him physically. And this man was was entering, and I, I kind of deduced this from the text, but I believe this man was kind of entering the idea, entertaining the idea of believing in Jesus as Savior if Jesus proved himself by healing his son. This happens. In his heart, he was saying, you know, Jesus, if you would just do this for me, I promise I would believe in you. I would accept you as Savior. If you just do this one thing for me, I will give my life to you. I have said that a lot. Not in the last 15 years since I got saved, but I said it about every other weekend before that. 
Have you ever made this promise to God? Well, I tell you, if you just help me with this situation, if you do this, I'll I'll tell you, I'll serve you and you, I will stop drinking as you're hugging the toilet. Boy, if you just rescue me from this sickness right now, I tell you, I will stop serving the booze and I will serve you. And here's what's amazing about that dynamic. The very next night, you renew your vows as you're repeating what you did. I know I blew it again, but I swear after this time, people do this. Right? They, they treat God like, he's, he, like you can barter with him. Like they've, they've bellied up to the, the blackjack table. And I tell you what, I'm going to roll the dice here, Lord. If you do this for me, I will do this for you. People do this. You know, they ask God for something, and there's no faith, and there's no real desire for God. It's just, I want out of this situation. Rescue me from this situation. And I tell you what, Lord, I'll give myself to you. And then somehow the circumstances change and everything's cool and you're like, God who? Jesus what? That's a curse word. Right? This is what people do. This is what I did a lot when I was, when I was younger and very foolish. In Matthew chapter 5, 33 through 37, Jesus warns us not to make spontaneous vows with God. Saying things like, I cross my heart and hope to die. Remember that one? I cross my heart and hope to die. I couldn't believe it, but Sally fell right then. Dumb vow. Or I swear on my mother's life. You ever watched an episode of Cops? Guys getting pinched for having dope on them. I swear on my mother's life. I, I don't know how the dope got into my pocket. This happens. I swear on my mother's life. Or I will swear on a stack of Bibles. Hands start smoking. Ouch. People make these vows all the time. They're very silly and we laugh at them, but they're actually God considers them a a vow. And Jesus just basically says in that text, don't do that. Jesus says anything beyond a yes or no from us is of the devil. Anything beyond a yes or no Playing that game is of Satan. Is of Satan. And believe it or not, that's actually what's playing out in the text here with this dad. I'll tell you what, Jesus, you come over to my house, you take care of, you take care of uh, uh, little Sal. I don't know why I'm on the Sally and Sal thing this morning. You take care of my boy. I'll tell you what, I'll follow you till the ends of the earth. That's what he's saying in here. And he wasn't the only one trying to play the bartering game. Everybody present, with the exception of the disciples, was doing it. Just show us one more miracle and we're yours. Everyone was thinking this way. Everyone was thinking this way. Show me, just just give me one more sign, Jesus, and I'll be convinced and I'll believe in you and I'll follow you and I'll do your will. That's how people were treating Jesus here. And and this is what's so awesome about Jesus and and so frightening is that he knows when we do this because he sees our hearts. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is all-knowing, omniscient. He knows what's going on with us. So he comes into a room. He 
immediately, he doesn't even have to listen to what people are saying. He analyzes their hearts because he has this divine power and he knows what games we're playing or what games people are playing. He knows whether they really believe, whether they don't, whether they're trying to play the barter game. He knows all this stuff. And all of these people are showing up and smiling and acting like they're at the Hollywood thing where people walk in there and go into the award show and he sees it all and he's reading them all and he knows there's no faith here. Just a bunch of superficial stuff going on. And now... He's dealing with a man who is desperate to have his son healed, but there's no faith. There's a belief in Jesus' power and a desire for that, but there is no, you are my Lord, you are my Savior. That's not happening here, not yet. And Jesus is about, in the text, in the story, he's about to, he's encountered the unbelief, and now he's about to expose it. And we see that in part two, exposing unbelief, verses 48 and 49. Here's Jesus' reply to the man's begging. You want me to come heal your son? It says, so Jesus said to him, unless, here's the correction, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Unless I do this for you, you're not going to believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus looked straight at this desperate official and exposed his unbelief, exposed his hidden desire to basically trade a miracle for faith. Jesus has got a read on him, he's got a beat on him, and bam, he just fires it off on him. Matthew Henry is a great commentator, he was a great pastor, reformed guy. He calls verse 48 a gentle rebuke. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He says that that is a gentle rebuke. And this is interesting because the other commentators I like to read say the exact opposite because they can't imagine that Jesus would rebuke a man who is suffering such great grief. Oh, this is not the Jesus I know. Jesus would never correct or admonish or rebuke somebody who's hurting in this way. Jesus flies around on a unicorn. He would never do this. Well, he did it. That's a correction. That's a rebuke. It's not a harsh one. He he didn't have my tone that I do right now. This is a rebuke. Let's not forget that the official had come to Jesus, not because he wanted Jesus, but because he wanted what Jesus could do for him. And that ain't cool. It's not cool. I agree with Matthew Henry. It's... should be viewed as a gentle rebuke, but it is also a lament. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, The Lord lamented at the spiritual condition of the people in general, both in Judea and in Galilee. Seeing is believing has always been the pragmatic philosophy of the lost world, even the religious world. So in a sense, Jesus is lamenting. He's saddened by the fact that he is once again being rejected by his own people. Now, I want you to notice the word you in verse 48. You see that? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Uh, It is actually plural. Jesus is not only addressing the Galilean official, he is addressing the people of Galilee as a whole. MacArthur weighs in at this point. The response of the Galileans was fundamentally flawed because it disregarded the person of Christ and centered on the need for a constant display of miraculous signs. 
Such an attitude represents the deepest state of unbelief. Keep showing us stuff, but we have no intention of believing in you. You just can't get, you can't get lower in unbelief. That's just despicable. We just want to be dazzled by the circus. We don't care about you. With one omniscient sentence, Jesus exposes their unbelief and rebukes their ungodly, unholy desire for more signs and wonders. But Jesus didn't rebuke this entire group and this man for the sake of just rebuking them. No, he was actually setting the stage for his next move. The rebuke had a, a twofold purpose. Maybe more, but I came up with two. First, it was meant to convict the official of his sin. When Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, he was rebuking this guy to convict him of his sin and anyone and everyone else there. This is Jesus calling him out for his sin. You want me to do something for you, you don't even believe. And we must remember, he does not believe in Jesus as Savior. To him, Jesus is merely a powerful miracle worker who could save his son. What is his sin? His sin is the sin of unbelief. His sin is the sin of rejection of Jesus as Savior. Somebody carries out that, that ideology and belief unto death. It is the unpardonable. There is no going back. This is the sin that damns men to hell. Damns them. So the first component of the rebuke is to convict Second, the rebuke was meant to prepare the official for God's other graces. Because I tell you what, the conviction of God is a grace. God not convicting men of their sin would be, that's not grace. That's leaving them as they are. The second part has to do with preparing the official for God's other graces. What graces? Mercy, repentance, and faith. At this point, the official is still highly concerned about his son, as any loving parent would be, but he understood Jesus clearly, and I believe his conscience was pricked by the Holy Spirit. He felt the sting of Jesus' rebuke. He realized that he was wrong, but think of the circumstances. His son's still about to die. Okay, I get it. I'm terrible. I'm not doing the right thing, but he's still going to die. There's no sarcasm here. It's just, oh my gosh. I didn't realize that, but he's still going to die. He was still absolutely terrified because of what was happening with his child. In verse 49, he pleads with Jesus once more, come, come to my house, come and save my son. And Jesus' response is just incredible. Look at, uh, let's look at part three, eliminating unbelief. Verses 50 through 54, this is, just, this is just stellar. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, he's headed towards his house, right? His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering so he asked them, this is the Galilean official asking his servants, he asked them the hour when he began to get better. When did my son start to get better? And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, 
your son will live. And he himself believed, and, and all his household. John wraps it up with, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Jesus met the demands of the Galileans. The, he met the demands of Galilean unbelief by healing the official's son, revealing not only his sympathy, but his marvelous graciousness in spite of such a faithless demand for miracles. Jesus healed the boy with four simple words, your son will live. Jesus isn't at the bedside. He doesn't touch the boy. He says these words from a distance. The man thought Jesus had to obviously go to his house to take care of business. Jesus says, go, your son will live. Done. Doesn't even have to go there. Doesn't have to go put his hands on him. Doesn't have to see him. Doesn't have to meet him. Let me get to know you before I can do this. None of that plays out. This kid was probably taken to every darn doctor in Galilee. And doctors were probably coming to him. Everyone was coming to him to do it. Jesus heals the boy without even flinching with words. The word of God is powerful and effective. And the official takes Jesus at his word. And he turns around and he heads for home. And this is so interesting. He must have lived pretty far from Capernaum because verse 52 shows that he didn't arrive until the next day. What did the servant say to him? Well, he started to get better yesterday. That's the day after he spoke with Jesus. How far did this man travel to try to get help for his child? There is no distance that we would go, wouldn't go to. This man walked all night. He traveled all night to get back to his estate. And as he drew near to his estate, some of his servants saw him coming down the path and they ran out to greet him and they declared, your son is recovering. Can you imagine the elation and joy that he felt and experienced in that moment? The official replies, when did he begin to recover? They said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Well, the seventh hour is seven hours past noon or 7 p.m. according to Roman time. Jesus uttered these healing, restorative words at 7 p.m. the day before. And that is the precise moment that the fever left this boy. And the official realized it right at that moment. Wow, right when he said that to me, my son was healed. John tells us that the official believed, along with his entire household. This is, this is real deal faith here, family. This isn't what was going on before. This is, not, this is not superficial. This is not pretending. This is not Hollywood. This is not acting. This is not, hi, Jesus, we're glad you're here. Don't really believe in you. This is the real deal. Jesus was, was no longer just a, a powerful miracle worker to the Galilean official. He was now his Savior. He was now his Lord. He believed. He embraced him wholeheartedly. If you were to ask him, do you believe in Jesus? Without a doubt, I believe in Jesus. And the first thing this guy did was he began to witness to his entire household. What did we talk about last week? Witnessing. This man 
believes in Jesus, God performed that miracle for him. That, that miracle was the clincher. That faith sprouted and grew in him. The Holy Spirit worked that out in him. And the first thing he does is he starts to witness to his household. Because, you know, they're all freaking out that this kid just went from, he was going from zero to death in two seconds. And all of a sudden he's cool and he's probably having some Kool-Aid. What's going on here, man? The Galilean official, the guy, the head of the household. Let me tell you what's going on. I'll tell you what, I went up there to find Jesus. You know that. I told you where I was going. And Jesus rebuked me because I wasn't a real believer. And that, that impacted me. And Jesus said, this, my son would live. And I took his word for it. And, and, and I came back and I saw it with my own two eyes. And I am literally convinced that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's uttering in his heart and to his household the very same thing the Samaritans said. We have, indeed, this is the Savior of the world. He witnesses to his own household. And God in sovereign grace, saves the whole house. And when it says household, it's not just his son. It's not just his daughter if he's got one. It's not just his wife. It's not just his cousin Jimmy who lives there. It's not just him. It's all of the servants. It's everyone in there. If there was a donkey in there, that donkey got saved. Yeehaw, Jesus. Everyone. Donkeys don't get saved. Everyone. Every person that was in that household got saved. The miracle accomplished its intended purposes. It proved Jesus' deity. It proved his messiahship. It eliminated unbelief. And it produced, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, real faith in the Galileans. That's the purpose of the miracle. The miracles testify to Jesus' testimony of who he is. And this miracle did that perfectly here. It shouted, he is God, he is Messiah, he is powerful. It shouted that what he says is true. And it shouted, repent and believe in him. And they did. Closing. There are a few things I'd like for us to consider as we begin to wrap up. First... What is our spiritual climate? It's a pretty legit question if you think about the text. Are we authentic, true disciples who believe in Jesus, who love Jesus, and who want to please Jesus with our lives? Or are we like the Galileans, just fans who put on a show and welcome Jesus, but they wanted Jesus to perform for them? They didn't want Jesus. Sadly, there are people in churches today who treat Jesus as a divine circus performer or as a cosmic genie. I'd like for you to know that Jesus is not interested in entertaining sinners, nor is he interested in, rec uh, in rescuing them from situations so that they will pretend to believe in him. Jesus, don't play that. Jesus is in the business of making authentic disciples who follow him even unto death, even unto martyrdom. So this whole game of pretending and, and treating him like a cash register and getting the money out of the drawer anytime you need it and all that is just garbage. And Jesus flat out rebukes it as he did in this text. 
and he rejects it. What is our spiritual climate? Are we authentic disciples? If we are, our lives will look a certain way, our hearts will be aligned with God's will, and we'll battle to keep it that way, and we'll love Jesus madly and crazy, and we want Jesus. Absolutely we want His blessings. Of course we do. But we want Jesus. The blessings are secondary. So there's the potential there to have a wrong spiritual climate, to be in it for what you can get rather than being in it because you love him, because you want him in your life. That's the first thing. Second, and this one's heavy. Jesus gives sinners what they do not deserve. Jesus didn't owe this man or these people a darn thing, did he? You see, this is maybe the biggest point of this whole story. The Galileans treated Jesus dishonorably with contempt. They refused to believe in him as Savior, and they demanded signs. Jesus could have easily, easily, and rightfully turned his back on them and shook the dust from his sandals. I'm not going back to Capernaum. He could have. He could have done that. Instead, he gives them what they do not deserve, grace, mercy, a sign, faith, salvation. You see, we were all Galileans at one point. Nobody's born a believer. Some people pretend they are. I don't even know what sin is. Yes, you do. You just admitted to it with that statement. If we say we have no sin, we lie to ourselves. We are deceived. We all dishonored Jesus at one point in our lives. Maybe we do still today in some way, shape, or form. But there is that dishonoring of rejecting Him. We all rejected Jesus. I can tell you without a doubt I rejected Jesus a lot before I was saved. Maybe some of us, maybe all of us have even demanded from Jesus, perform for me, do this for me, and I'll do that. Jesus could have easily turned his back on us and, and shook the dust from his sandals, but he didn't. Instead, he gave us what we do not deserve. Grace, mercy, a sign, the Holy Spirit. Faith, salvation, sanctification. And by golly, he's going to give us glorification, resurrection. Because of Jesus, we are no longer Galileans. We are children of God. There's a big difference. And as God's children, we should honor Jesus, our prophet, in our hometown and bring Him glory wherever we go, right? That parenthetical statement should not describe us. As His people, we should be the opposite of it. We bring Him glory and we bring Him honor Yet maybe you're still a Galilean. You do not believe in Jesus as Savior. Well, I'd like to encourage you to heed Jesus' warning in verse 48. 
I'd like to encourage you to accept his invitation to new life in verse 53. I'd like to encourage you to humble yourself. Be like the desperate Galilean official, in a sense. Plead with Jesus. Beg Jesus to show you his saving power, to show it to you, to show it to your entire household. Remember that old J.C. Ryle saying, the ear of the Lord Jesus is ever open to the cry of all who need mercy and grace. What a saying. You don't have to stay a Galilean. But if you're determined to do so, it's on you. Jesus gives sinners what they do not deserve. He gives us what we do not deserve. He has given me the opposite of God's justice and wrath. I shall live my life for him. I owe him. I love him. Do you? Lastly, John referenced Jesus' first major sign in verse 46 because he wants his readers to compare that scene with the scene in our passage. Didn't talk about this during the sermon, but I'm talking about it now. The first scene is a wedding. Weddings are festive. Weddings are filled with joy. Weddings are filled with happiness and celebration. They certainly should be. But at this wedding, a terrible problem arose that only Jesus could fix. The wine ran out. Without wine, the week-long celebration would end and the groom and his family would suffer much embarrassment, shame, and potentially litigation. This is how it worked back then. It wasn't like our parties. Well, the beer ran out. Oh, well. It's way different back then. Wine was a very important part of the celebrating. Of course, it was probably not as potent as it is today, but it wasn't that people were sitting around getting drunk all day. It was just, and weddings back then were a week long. And it was the groom's responsibility to make sure that there was enough wine for the entire celebration the whole week. And if it ran out, his butt was on the line. He could even get divorced. Her family might so despise him and his family for ruining that celebration that, it, that marriage might not even make it to the end of the week. This was serious business. And that happened during this time of joy. This potential tragedy arose during the celebration. And only Jesus, only Jesus could fix it. Bevmo wasn't open on that day. The second scene was not a wedding. And it wasn't festive, it wasn't joyful, nor was it happy. It was no celebrating. It was fraught with sickness, desperation, anxiety, the dreadful shadow of death. An official's son was dying and only Jesus could save him. In comparing the two scenes, we can clearly see that Jesus is needed in both circumstances, can't we? At the celebration where everything is going great, the bottom falls out, Jesus is the remedy. In the reverse scenario where you have death and terror and fear and sadness, 
Only Jesus can remedy it. We need him then. We need him in the celebrating. We need him in the tragedies. We need him in the celebration. We need him during the calamity. That is why John put these two miracles together side by side, and they both happened in the region of Cana. There is a deep, profound lesson here that we need to rely on Jesus during the good, during the bad, during the ugly. But typically, what do we do? We flee to him during the bad and the ugly, and we don't even acknowledge him during the good. And as we can see from that first scene, tragedy can befall during the absolute best of times. Life is uncertain. It's filled with all sorts of calamity, and these things arise when you least expect it. The need for Jesus as his people is 24-7. 